Welcome back to Mission 150. I'm David Trim. I'm Director of Archives, Statistics, and Research for the Seventh-day Adventist World Church. And I'm Sam Nevis, your co-host, Social Director of Communication for the World Church. Today, we're joined by Dr. Michael Sukupa. Since 2016, Dr. Sukupa has been Associate Director of the Ellen G. White Estate, based in Silver Spring, Maryland. He formerly taught theology and church history at Helderberg College in South Africa. Michael, welcome to Mission 150. Thank you. I'm happy to be here celebrating this 150 years of mission in the Adventist Church. Michael, well, let, let me just ask a question before we get in, David. What drew you to history? Why is it that you like history? Well, um, it was a second love for me. I was in biblical studies. And then I discovered that there's more questions I have than answers. Mm. And that attracted me into history gradually. And I equipped myself in many ways in understanding history. And, and we're very glad you did, because uh, when people study history very deeply, not all of us need to. We can just ask them questions. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael is an expert on the history of the church in Africa. And so we're delighted to have him with us as today we're going to talk about the early days of the church in South Africa. Michael, why did the Seventh-day Adventist Church take the decision to send missionaries to South Africa? It boils down to appeals. Two appeals came from South Africa to the world church. Mm -hmm. And the first appeal came in 1878, when J.H.C. Wilson wrote uh, to the Adventist Review with uh, information about his uh, embracing of this newly found Sabbath faith. He had apparently met uh, William Hunt, who was uh, came, coming from uh, the United States in Nevada. and. Um, William Hunt had met Loveborough, John Loveborough, who shared with him the Adventist faith. And then he came, uh, he was a miner, uh, right. in gold miner in Nevada. And now he heard about the diamond rush in South Africa, Kimberley. And he was interested and he went there to explore as a prospector for diamonds. So here we have somebody who is a Seventh-day Adventist in America. Mm -hmm. He's a miner, he's a prospector for gold, and he thinks, I'll prospect for diamonds. So he emigrates to South Africa. Yes. So now we actually have an Adventist in South Africa, not a missionary, but an Adventist. Yes. And he uh, sets his business out of prospecting, but he also shares his faith. Mm. He's a witness uh, through literature, because we have evidence that uh, from J.H.C. Wilson's uh, note or letter to the Adventist Review that he had been a, a Methodist for 15 years. And upon meeting Hunt and learning about the literature, from the literature that he shared uh -huh. about Adventists, and about the Sabbath, he was convinced beyond uh, doubt that this was the truth from the Bible, and especially uh, convincing arguments from the, uh, especially signs of the times that he read. And this uh, was a good reason for him to begin to share with others, beginning with his wife, and convinced her. And then he mentions in his letter that he convinced to others, but we don't have the names of the people he convinced, but right. he continues passionately. 
to share his newly found faith. I wonder how many Adventists have gone on business to regions of the world that have no Adventists today, mm -hmm. right? Their business moved them there. They are trying to prospect something. Mm -hmm. And here we have someone who did not wait for any call mandate. He just took the literature and he started sharing with the latest technology they had, which was print. Yes. Today, there are plenty more options that they, they would have available. Right. So th that's an interesting uh, um, observation that, uh, you know, this moment where this, this guy goes on business, but he doesn't waste any time. He's already starts, you know, helping people understand the truth. Mm. Mm. And so when does Wilson write his letter to the review? He writes his uh, note on, um, in, in 1878. 1878. So this yes. four years after Andrews had been sent. Yes. So we broke ground on mission sending. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Um, and, but there is no response. There is no response. Mm. Um, well, we also don't hear much or know much about Wilson after that which is something that historians are puzzled about and still an ongoing research about, you know, who Wilson was. What happened to him? Yeah. So um, two other individuals begin to study the, the Bible. We have not established the connection between this study of the Bible and discovering the Sabbath by Peter Vessels and George van Druten. But what we know is that they were studying the Bible independently and they meet as friends and share what they have found, which is, which is the Sabbath uh, so, truth from the Bible. So these, ha as far as we know, haven't studied any Adventist literature. They've just studied no. the Bible. They've read the fourth commandment. Yes. Remember the Sabbath day mm -hmm. to keep it holy and mm -hmm. worship on the seventh day. Right. Um, and so they've decided to worship on the seventh day. Now, from their names, von Druten and Vessels, I would guess that those are both Afrikaners yes. <clears throat> or Dutch-speaking South Africans. Mm -hmm. Today, we would say they spoke Afrikaans, but I think back then they said themselves that they spoke Dutch. Dutch, that's right. Yeah. And they were also in a territory or area that was mostly farmland. So these are... Kimberley. That sounds too familiar. Farmers studying the Bible and discovering for themselves <laughs> that the Sabbath is the truth. Um, it seems to have a parallel just later on, mm -hmm. you know, within the, a few years. So if we don't know about Wilson, I presume they connected with Hunt. Yes. And what did definitely. Hunt tell them? So they find or they hear about Hunt. They hear about this gentleman who in his claim over there in the diamond fields on a Sabbath or every Sabbath, he sits on his uh, claim, and he reads the Bible. So he's not working his claim. This makes him unusual, I yes. guess. <laughs> Very unusual. And so he draws attention. Uh, but he has literature that he shares with people around uh, the diamond rush and fields over there. And so they come uh, to, to meet him, and he tells them about the Seventh-day Adventists who worship on Sabbath, who believe in the seventh day Sabbath. So when is this? When does this happen? This happens around 1885. So it's several years after Wilson writes his yes, letter. Yes. So there's a gap uh, where we don't know whatever happened to Wilson. And here again, another uh, prompting of mission work begins through the witness again of William Hunt at this diamond field. Another prompting, and earlier you said appeals. So 
does another letter gets written to the general conference? Yes, this time they all not only write a letter, but now they send money. And who is the they? Is it Hunt or is it Vessels? Van Druten. It's Van Druten and Vessels? And, and Vessels send uh, 50 pounds. Which is wow. not a small sum of money back then, right. it has to be said. And their purpose is to have a missionary or at least a minister, a Dutch-speaking minister sent to South Africa to teach them more about the Adventist faith. So this is the second appeal that you talk about. Yes. And so it's interesting that in South Africa, as in other parts of the world, an Adventist presence predates the first missionaries. The first missionaries don't arrive and say, right, here we are, we've got to try and convert people full stop. No, as with Andrews going to Europe, Mm -hmm. as with Madison going to Scandinavia, after Andrews went to Central Europe, as in West Africa, as in other parts of the world too. Actually, yeah. there's already an Adventist presence. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's due to Adventist literature. Yes. In this case, it's both due to Hunt himself going, mm-hmm. but also the Adventist literature that he shares. This is a different picture that sometimes we paint, David, historically, because sometimes when we talk about our pioneers, we, they had vision. Mm. And they, they thought, let's, let's take this mission to the world and let's go here and let's go there. And they are proactive and they're investing and sending. But in all these episodes, it seems that the opposite happens. God is already there. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he encourages some people to discover the truth. And they make the appeals. It, it seems the General Conference, even back then, was reactive. Mm-hmm. Let's react to what God is doing and let's, uh, let's follow God's lead uh, in going forward. Which explains the miracle of a group of farmers... Um, that started this movement under God's guidance back then. And it had everything to go wrong. Yes. But today for every McDonald's in the world, there are four Adventist congregations everywhere. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because God was leading and we were reacting to God's leading. That's a very different picture Mm. from what I imagined. It, it is. And so as you know, very often it is the case that local people are saying, we're here, mm-hmm. send us a minister who can work with us. And also, I guess, in this case, teach us more. Mm. And sending funds. Yes. <laughs> well, and that's, a, that's an unusual level of commitment. Mm. So 1885, this goes, when does the church send its first missionaries to South Africa? So the first missionaries come in 1887. All right, so it takes a couple of years, but then it will have taken quite some time for a letter to get from South Africa to Battle Creek. Mm -hmm. And And also to prepare the ministers or the missionaries to come, but eventually... And then to make the journey. Yes. And at that point, if I recall correctly, they actually had to sail via England because there was no direct sailing, ship sailing from the United States to South Africa. Mm -hmm. So they had to take the long way around. In fact, one of the missionary families were in Norway at the time, and so it looks like uh, they uh, stopped in Norway, and this is where they uh, meet Ellen White in Norway on their way to South Africa. Mm. And then she is later Ellen White on, is in Europe. At, Ellen White is, is in, in Europe, Europe at this, this time. Yes, yes. She went to Norway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she went. She traveled all around Europe. Mm-hmm. Very cool. She was there for almost two years, and she visited a lot of countries. Yeah, from Norway to South mm-hmm. Africa. Yeah. With Ellen White on the way. Yes. (laughs) In in other parts of the world, in previous episodes, we saw that they don't just send one minister. They usually send a team. Is that the case here? This is the case here as Mm. well. So they send a team. And in that team, you have uh, D.A. Robinson. Doris. Doris 
Alonzo uh, Robinson. You have Charles Boyd. And these are two missionary families. Then among them yes, also... Yes, their wives go as well, right? Yes, yes. their wives come with, with them. And then you have literature evangelists as well. Uh-huh. So you have uh, George Bully and R.S. Anthony. These are literature evangelists. So they send two ministers mm-hmm. and their wives, mm-hmm. and then they send two literature evangelists or coal porters, they yes. would have called them. Uh-huh. Is that who, do they send anyone else? Uh, these were uh, the first lot of missionaries that were sent. That's but later on, there is another group of missionaries that were sent. Because in other places, they included medical... Or teachers. Or teachers, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But this time, they sent ministers and coal porters. And coal porters. Right. And what is interesting is the way it was carefully planned, because they all dock in Cape Town. And... Uh, the other family goes up to Kimberley, where the request came from. Right. Another family remains in Cape Town. So they actually split. They split. Mm. And also, I found interestingly that even the coal porters split. So you have one uh, remaining in Cape Town and another going up to Kimberley. But this is interesting because it reflects the reality of South Africa, at which at this point, there is no country of South Africa. Yes. There's a British colony, the Cape mm-hmm. Colony. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also two Dutch Afrikaner republics, yes. the Orange Free State and the Transvaal Republic. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, there is no country of South Africa. Yeah. And so they're recognizing the political and the cultural and linguistic split. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying, right, we'll keep a minister and a coal porter in Cape Town, which is mm-hmm. the capital of the British Cape Colony. Yes. But we'll also send somebody up to the Diamond Fields, mm-hmm. which is, if it's Kimberley, then it's still a British colony, but you're getting close there to where the African two republics of Orange Free State yes. and Transvaal are, and you've got Afrikaners there. Mm-hmm. So there's there's got one group who's working for English speakers, mm-hmm. Is the other group working for Dutch speakers? Because presumably they don't know Dutch. Well, they don't know Dutch, but they work within that context. And therefore, a lot of translation had to be done. And I think some were educated enough to be able to pick up uh, English. Were, were vessels and the other gentleman's name that I... Van Druten. Van Druten. Van Druten. Were they disappointed that the minister did not speak Dutch? Because that's what they requested, right? They were excited that a minister was sent <laughs> because they begin to work with him to build the work uh, in Kimberley. And they... Pour themselves out in terms of resources. But do they speak English themselves? I think they did because, uh, from what we know, they sent uh, the communications in English. Right. So obviously they spoke some English. It may not have been their preference language, but they definitely spoke English. So they're excited to have a minister come, but they would have preferred it if he'd been a Dutch Mm -hmm. speaker. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But they they work with it. Mm -hmm. Do the American missionaries start to learn local languages, including African indigenous languages? Well, in my observation of their stay in the mission field, for example, uh, D.A. Robinson stays only a year and he moves on. So to another country to, or a different part of uh, South Africa? To another country, I think in England and then to India. So he's an evangelist, basically. So 
he spent most of his time doing the work of evangelism and he spent time in Cape Town. That's where he was based. So he and his family were in Cape Town and he does a series of evangelistic outreach meetings in Cape Town in order to secure uh, and reach as many uh, people as possible. Did he have any success? Yes, he had some success, but uh, the time that he stayed was uh, too short for really big successes because it takes time to build relationships. Yeah. And remember that most of the churches were already established in South Africa at this time. What do you mean? Most of the other denominations? You yes, mean? that's what I mean. I see. Uh -huh. So you've got other denominations that are well established. Already. Mm -hmm. So do they, does the GC, the General Conference, send missionaries, more missionaries in 1888 yes. to replace Robinson? There were more missionaries sent as the work was beginning to grow. Um, we have uh, Robinson's brother, Doris Robinson's brother, Asa Theron Robinson, who becomes the superintendent of the work, the growing work in, in South Africa. So Doris Robinson moves on to England to yes. lead mission there, and mm -hmm. Asa Robinson, his brother, comes yes. and replaces and him. Replaces him. <laughs> so, so it's a family of missionaries, it seems. Yeah. And it flows in the family. But uh, he takes on a rather different approach to mission. He establishes the structures of, of the church. Uh, there were still few members, but he's his goal was to establish education institutions and mm. also to build the structure of the work. Now, the structure of the church at the time, you had uh, conferences and then you had various uh, departments that were well, kind of independent. They weren't departments. They were, not, they were, yeah. they were associations. Associations, yeah. that's right. That's yeah. the term. So these associations had their own boards. So looking at the growing and developing work and trying to find, you know, for each of these associations, workers right. was a huge challenge. So you have, for example, the International Tract and Missionary Society, which takes care of literature. You have the International Sabbath School Association, which right. does is promoting the Sabbath school work. You have the International Health and Temperance no, it's the International Medical Missionary, and I think, association it is. It changes its name a couple of times. Yeah. So all of these have their own committees and boards, and they're all operating independently of everybody else. Yes, so, they designed a system at that point, I guess, that was fragmented by design, mm -hmm. right? I don't, no, I don't think it was by design. I think that it was the church starts, it's small. They recognize, oh, we need a literature work. Mm -hmm. And they're Americans, they're used to voluntary associations, so they mm -hmm. found it's actually women who start it. They mm -hmm. start what they call the Vigilant Tract Society, mm -hmm. which becomes the Tracts and Missionary Society, which then becomes the International Tract and Missionary Society. And it's actually women who found that. And then people say, right, but we also need a medical work. So, And by this time, the church is having a medical work in America, so we'll found an association or a society that deals with that. So it's not by design. It's mm. just it just sort of it just happens. It evolves mm. to give people the maximum autonomy possible to lead that uh, that ministry. Or what what did they did they have any measurement of of success? Did they report at general conference sessions? Oh yeah, and remember what was the gen relationship? General conference sessions are every year at this point. Mm -hmm. um, which means that you don't get people coming from 
overseas every year because it's, it's expensive to come every year. Mm -hmm. But uh, they'll send reports back. Eventually, by the early 20th century, when the cost of sea travel has come down, you do get international people coming every year. To By then, it's not to a general conference session. It's to what they call the Autumn Council, mm. what we would call annual council today, because yeah. by then, GC sessions move from once a year to two years and then to every four years. Mm. But so, they, you know, you are getting people coming from overseas. Eventually, and we'll tackle this in a separate podcast, the church recognizes that the structure that it had created for a church that was mostly in the Midwest of the United States mm -hmm. um, isn't going to work for a worldwide missionary church. And am I remembering correctly that South Africa had something to do with that restructuring? South Africa did have something to do yes, with that restructuring. certainly, because they do write to the general conference regarding the way they would like to structure their, their work huh. in light of the small numbers, but big growing distances. in big distances. So to bring, to bring people together in a kind of conference structure was going to be a challenge uh, with numbers. And so they write and request to have a kind of different structure. <laughs> and this is Asa Robinson who takes the lead yes. on this, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's right. Yeah, He came later. And isn't it South Africa where they model the creation of the associations into departments? Into departments, exactly. So that they become departments of yes. the church that can work more strategically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, part of the reason for this is not only that South Africa has small numbers, but big distances, but it's also a long way away mm -hmm. from Battle Creek. Right. Europe actually doesn't take that long to reach mm -hmm. um, because sea voyages across the North Atlantic are relatively quick. And then you get the telegraph lines so that mm -hmm. they can actually communicate via telegraph. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like that to South Africa for much longer. So to communicate, you can't re relay every decision back to Battle Creek mm -hmm. for the region of Southern Africa. You've got to have some kind of regional autonomy. Yes. Or at least that's what they think. The GC isn't quite so sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then you then you you get things developing from there. But so the South Africa, the church in South Africa has some interesting innovations. Yes. And this happens also, as you say, because of the distances, communication. Uh, it takes a while before that request gets to the GC. And by the time they get a response that says, no, they've already done the uh, That's right. Work. I remember this. So they, they wrote it, but it took so long to get there. And yeah. to, by the time they got back, they had already restructured yeah. and said, what do we do? Well, let's continue. Yeah. To what degree do you think the Adventist church benefited from this early missionary deployment in learning how to structure a global church? Because when you are within just one culture, as you said, they're used to associations. That's how things are done. Right. So let's do that. But then other people in different parts of the world want to advance this mission and other structures are set up. <laughs> and then in 1901, we restructure. Is this restructuring not just in order to fulfill the mission better, but to include the input that we got from different parts of the world? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, the, 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 lead, the charge to reorganize is led by Arthur Daniels, who's just spent 10 years as a missionary in Australia and New Zealand. And so it's very much reflecting the input of experience in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, but so... so I think, yeah, what, what you see, of course, is the church is founded in the Midwest of the United States, 
by people who come from New England and upstate New York, though the Midwest is where it grows. Um, they don't even have much of a presence on the West Coast. The first missionaries that they send, they call the missionaries the ones who go to the West Coast. The West Coast. Um, so the church has to learn how to adapt to being a worldwide movement. Mm -hmm. it's, it's set up for one thing and then, praise God, it grows and becomes another thing. And at first, there's no willingness to change. And, and you know, we can see this perhaps even today that people say, you know, by the late 1880s, there's been 25 years of a general conference. This is the way it's always been. <laughs> you know, this is this is this must be what God intended. So we don't want to to modify it. Um, whereas, you know, sometimes God hands down eternal things. Mm. Other times, God hands down principles and practices that are appropriate to the time and place, mm -hmm. and aren't meant to be used forever. Yeah. Right. Well, they were trying to figure out the geographical world and they restructured uh, to the degree that it was possible and desirable to fulfill the mission then. Mm -hmm. We are now figuring out all the new changes of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. We've just been through a pandemic. Membership is, is bound to, to have an impact on the church life now that mm -hmm. people can connect beyond geography and beyond you know time yeah. live and yeah. so on. So we're trying to figure this out. Yeah. Did the restructure work? Did they grow as a result? What happened? in the 90s, It 1890s. would appear that um, the growth was not only based on the structure, but the structure really did help to, uh, to enhance the growth of the work where you had, as uh, David was saying, input from various uh, individuals, uh, not necessarily, you know, um, structures, but you had one pool. And this, there, there was also another resistance to this. Mm. And that was uh, a move. It was seen as a move towards centralization, which was something between 1901 and 1903 that was being resisted because of Ellen White's counsel, that we should, as much as possible, uh, work towards decentralization rather than centralization. So the reason perhaps for the resistance and also uh, the negative uh, response to this restructuring was that it tended, it was seen, perceived to be a, a centralization. And yet what they did in South Africa is interesting because it does represent a, a centralization, mm. but a centralization in Southern Africa. Yes. Again, there's no one South Africa at this time in the 1890s. There are several different countries, mm -hmm. British colonies, independent republics. But there's a ref recognition that this is one region. Mm. And so they centralize there, but then they do, they say we want to devolve authority from Battle Creek to this organization. So it's both a centralization and a decentralization at the same time. It's it's organized autonomy. It's yes. organized autonomy. Michael, let's come to a a topic that in some ways might be sensitive. Mm -hmm. Who did the missionaries initially target? Was it the white population or was it the majority black population? Well, South African dynamics at this time are such that uh, you you don't have a legislated uh, situation of uh, apartheid. It was that it came much later, the late forties, forties, forty-eight, yeah, uh, to be exact. And so, before this, uh, what we see in the organization of the church is that there was 
uh, unity, but your point and your question is, who did they target? Um, yes, they worked first among the people that invited them, right? You know, so they worked among them. They were the connection. Which would mean the, the families of, yes. of, of vessels of in vessels, Yes. And then it was fostering new work in Cape Town. And we have, uh, you know, whites who uh, get the message first through the, uh, uh, the, the spreading of the work. And also, uh, largely, some populations were kind of concentrated. Uh, black populations, colored populations were scattered uh, all over. So um, early in the work, they begin to attract some uh, African and colored converts. Early on? Yes, because we have a record that the first convert, or at least the first colored uh, convert, was Daniel Tennyson, uh, who had contact with the Vessels family. He was ah. working for them. Right. Mm. So that contact uh, was a, a means to have somebody who can share the gospel with family and right. it could it spread from there uh, into the development of work among coloreds. And Michael, just, just we should say this because many of our viewers and listeners will be from the United States. Yes. Colored in, Af in South Africa has a particular meaning. In America, colored means sort of is almost an alternative for the word black. Yes. In South Africa, colored means somebody who is of mixed race or mixed race descent. Yes. Whereas, and so in using colored, we're actually using a particular term that was current at the time and still to some extent. Well, there's, there's also uh, another view uh, besides the mixed race view that they are descendants from the Khoi or Khoisan uh, tribe. So there is that connection as well right. uh, for the for the coloreds. That's where they trace their roots, which is more indigenous right. than just a, a mixed race. But the, oh. the colored is a distinct mm. community yeah. as opposed to the the, the black African. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so there isn't. It isn't the case, at least in in the north, where they the, they're targeting just whites. They're mm -hmm. actually targeting a groups of families and their connections, yes. some of whom will be colored or black, mm -hmm. and so they convert them. I guess in Cape Town, do they mostly target whites there? Yes, because those were the people who received them. Right. And, and so they were mostly concentrated in the city. Mm -hmm. But they meet a very interesting gentleman by the name of Richard Moko. And his story is kind of interesting and mysterious because uh, he writes and reports that he had a, a dream to go to Cape Town. And it was during the time of the um, uh, unrest and situation with uh, the, the preceding the Anglo-Boer War. Ah. So there was a, a, a staged kind of rebellion uh, in the area of Kimberley. Mm. And so he was on his way uh, to Rhodesia for uh, prospecting for more work. Uh, he was a businessman, a very educated uh, he man. a white? He's black. He's black. Yeah, Richard Moko is uh, the first uh, Adventist ordained minister in South Africa. The first black. Yes. Right. So this is his story. So um, he turns back after this dream and then he, he, he goes, it gets into a train to Cape Town. He gets to Cape Town, 
somebody else uh, had an impression or dream to meet him. They meet, and then he started learning more about Adventism through these Adventists, this cluster of Adventists. Right. Yeah. So when is he ordained? He is ordained around 1897. 1897. 1897. Still, so within 10 years, Mm -hmm. they're not just targeting whites. They're actually reaching a broad spectrum of the community, and you have your first black African ordained minister. Right. So that's, that's, that's remarkable, you know, because it could have been that they would only try to target people who look and sound like me. Yes. But actually, they've got a more expansive view of mm-hmm. mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it begins to grow then from these individuals. And there's also another one within the, the, that same kind of period. His name is David Kalaka. He was Sutu speaking. So they meet in Kimberley because from Cape Town, Moko went to Kimberley. Is he Sotu speaking, Moko? Moko is Tosa speaking. Right. And uh, Kalaka is Sotu speaking. Both of them. So two different languages, two yes. different ethnic groups. Yes. That's important to uh-huh. know. Say the name of that language again. Tosa. Oh, that little click. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you tried. <laughs> We're glad Michael is here to do it for us. <laughs> so they begin to translate Ellen White's Steps to Christ into Tosa. And Sutu. So they're, they're already translating. They're translating as that. Um, because they were both teachers, educated, um, and they begin to do the translation and do uh, Bible studies among the indigenous uh, people within Kimberley. And then Moko moves to his hometown uh, or close to his hometown in King Williamstown. And that's where he begins his mission work to, among the, the, the Corsa people, among the black people. So within 10 years, you've got work amongst four different language groups, yeah. two European wow. and two African, and you're even translating Ellen White's writings into yeah. those languages. Yes. What kind of institutions were created well, uh, at in order the time, to help all of this? The, the schools, uh, I think the first uh, institution was uh, Claremont Union College. Claremont Union College. Claremont Union yeah. College. And but was before that, was that in Cape Town, I think. Yes, it was in Cape Town. But before that, there's something that I recently just found, that um, there was a school in Beaconsfield Church in Kimberley. Oh, right, up in the north. Yes. And this is With information that uh, most South African historians, Adventists, have not really picked up. Wow, so you're sharing with us something new. Something new uh, that I've just found, uh, but there was a school um, in in Kimberley, and this is probably the beginnings of uh, Adventist education, and then it developed to uh, the Claremont Union College. Now, the Claremont Union College has a very interesting uh, background and story, because it was, um, remember, the vessels were wealthy uh, Adventists who sponsored and also helped develop uh, most of the Adventist institutions and, mm. and even uh, churches. So they fund the building uh, of the, the, the college. And they were businessmen, you said, right? They were or farmers, farmers, farm. but they move uh, because of selling the, the farm land at a fortune. They moved to Cape Town and they began to do other businesses. So they, they, make, they, so they make money. Yeah. Didn't they sell to the De Beers, you said? Yes, they sold their farm to the De Beers. Who okay. of course, Who, the great Well, that's diamond. where the diamond yeah. was. Right. So they, they sold their farm at a profit, probably. Yes. So, <laughs> so they, they, they used their funds mm-hmm. to advance the mission. So advance it would be like a, a, an, early, an early example of ASI. Yeah. Suppose, yes. You know, oh, entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who are 
Well, and indeed, these are lay, these are the lay people who call for the missionaries. So yes. they really are. They really are very mm -hmm. engaged lay people. Mm -hmm. So Claremont Union College is modeled against uh, Battle Creek College. Mm. So they are into classics. They are into you know that model of education. But then the students, the few students they have, uh, did not graduate because their work was so uh, difficult. Oh. And so they begin to change uh, and remodel. Their standards the were too high in the curriculum, right? And the, the approach, yes, uh -huh, okay. to education. So um, they move from there to Spionkop near uh, Natal. Uh, they moved their college because the city was beginning to encroach uh, the college. So they moved it to Spionkop. And there it was there for about 10 years, but it was far from everything. Right. So they could not even do mission work. Because... A good Adventist approach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there's the, there's the drawback. If you isolate yourself too much, you can't do mission work. Exactly, because now they were all by themselves, isolated, far from everyone. <laughs> so they moved back again to, to uh, <laughs> Somerset West. That's where Helderberg College is. Right. So that's so, the so it's the ancestor. It's the ancestor of Helderberg yes. College, where you taught, and uh -huh. which I have visited, still exists today. Yes. And does a fantastic work. Right. And then another institution was a sanitarium. There were actually two sanitariums that were uh, developed. It was the Plumstead Sanitarium and the Claremont Sanitarium. And these were also uh, contributed to by the vessels. Then you have uh, other missions that were developed through the work of Richard Moko. Uh, Maranatha Mission, Bethel Mission, Kangela Missions. These developed into schools later on, but they started as missions. And they're reaching out to the indigenous black African people. Yes. Yeah. So it was education, health and also general mission work that, um, you know, institutions took, you know. Which, which developed, though, into schools. Into schools later, yes. Uh -huh. Michael, this has been fascinating, but unfortunately we have to wrap up. Mm -hmm. What is the most important lesson that we can learn from t today from the early history of the church in South Africa? Well, I think what we may learn is the fact that God works sometimes in ways that we cannot even imagine mm. because thinking of how uh, the work started uh, much much later um, 1885 or even 1878 was quite late for uh, you know the development of, of Christianity in South Africa but God had uh, touched people and worked with people who some were not even sent officially, like William Hunt. He was not sent officially as a, as a missionary, but his, his witness was a seed for what we have today as the church that is vibrant and growing. Or Richard Moko, whose conversion seems to be miraculous, yes. providential. And that's also God's work uh, to reach the people. And so in Ellen White's counsel to the missionaries in Southern Africa, she encouraged them to try and work with as many cultures as possible to diversify their efforts. And so that counsel also helped. And so we have this, you know, uh, divine prophetic counsel that helps uh, support the work of the missionaries. But indeed, uh, the work in South Africa right now is still uh, very low in terms of numbers mm. when you look at the population. This is a reality. We have a population of 
close to uh, 60 million. But the church is hardly 200,000 mm. members. So it seems at first there was very good, uh, you know, uh, growth. But later on, somehow, there are factors perhaps that one could look at that may contribute to this stagnant, stagnation of growth uh, within, uh, you know, when you look at and comparing with the Southern African uh, churches and how you know, the countries. work has, grow, uh, has, grow, has grown, there is uh, a little bit of stagnation that has happened over the years. And uh, apartheid could be one of those factors, um, but also secular kind of lifestyle, right. materialism. Those are issues that I think when we may change methodology and, and approach the uh, evangelistic and missionary work in, in, in actually targeting those uh, types of uh, uh, people and lifestyles, we may find uh, probably a different uh, change and a, a turnaround from well, what things are now. We are going to have to pick this up in the next chapter where we're going to find out what happens next and the growth of the, of the mission mm -hmm. in Africa. Thank you, Michael, for being with us. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on your favorite podcast platform. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, they're still going out all over the world, where should you go? Go to AdventistMission.org. I'll repeat that, AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities, you can go to Vivid Faith. We have an entire platform for opportunities for mission. If you are an Adventist organization, you can set up the calls and, and your project, and you will have missionaries from all over the world applying to come and help you. Today, we have more missionaries wanting to go than we have organizations ready to receive them. So perhaps you could help with that too. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring story of Adventist mission around the world. Mm -hmm.